Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 121 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right. For any of you listening, if you know Folly Coffee, you know I personally am a huge fan of TikTok as a platform for entertainment value. And this is also a coffee podcast. So this is... One of the guests I've been very excited to have on. We finally were able to finally make it work. I know we're both busy, but I've got Dan McLaughlin of AKA Soft Porn. YouTube, don't flag me because that's spelled soft P-O-U-R-N as in pouring coffee. Just shy of a million followers on TikTok, over 19 million likes, and old owner of Golden Triangle Coffee. Welcome to the show. How you doing? <laughs> I am good. Have you done a podcast before, I should ask? Uh, I've done, like, two, I think, and they were well over two years ago. It's been a while. Awesome. Uh, well, I'm exci- excited to have you on. Uh, would love to get into kind of your TikTok, wh- why you started it, how you started it, the following you've been able to garner, uh, how you got into coffee roasting, how you got into coffee in the first place. And then at the end, I'm just going to ask some, like, home brewing coffee tips tricks kind of your best practices of what you like to do brewing coffee at home but as i like to start with anybody that's into coffee on this podcast how did you get into like the high end of specialty coffee in the first place well i started in like the severe low end uh well let's say mid end uh second wave cafe um i was i think 15 uh and I had this razor scooter and I would scooter down to this coffee shop like every single day, twice a day. And I would get soup. I would get cheddar broccoli soup. And one night I scooted in there around like 9 PM. The manager's like, Hey, uh, do you want a job? And I was like, yeah, I guess why not? Uh, so I took a job there and I started working that night. They gave me a t-shirt and everything. Um, and I worked there for a number of years. Uh, and eventually like I realized that the culture of coffee wasn't something I was a huge fan of. Hmm. Uh, and so I thought I would solve this by sort of job hopping to different barista jobs and different, uh, like doing different courses, SCA and all that. Um, and I realized like, oh, none of this is really fixing it. Um, and so I, I just started working on accessibility, um, working with customers rather than trying to expand my own um, coffee knowledge, my own coffee expertise. Uh, I wanted to sort of dial back everything that was uh, coffee-related to make it more accessible to the customer. Mm -hmm. So my intro to specialty coffee, everything I've learned, I've learned for the purpose of simplifying it more than anything. Um, And it really has just been job job hopping and and expanding my knowledge uh, for the purpose of making it easier. Now, when you say coffee culture that you said, it's just not what you're looking for, not quite a right fit. What were the things that you were experiencing that you just go, coffee culture just isn't what I thought it would be? So I, I've often promoted myself as like the, the anti-elitist coffee roaster. That's been um, sort of my tagline for a long time. And elitism is kind of a a key component to coffee culture as a whole i've found and i'm sure a lot of people would agree there's there's this sort of 
I don't even know what to call it. Like, uh, I'm, I'm better than you because you don't know the things that you don't really need to know as a customer. Yes. You know? Yeah. The, the pretentiousness <laughs> of the high end of specialty coffee. It's something that I've talked about on this podcast multiple times. Cause I had the exact yeah. same experience when I started getting into coffee that you walk up to this menu. Oh, we've got a naturally processed Ethiopian yogurt chef today. I go, so is that like, is that a coffee? <laughs> like, I, and you're like intimidated just to even ask because you don't want to sound stupid. And there's like sometimes this vibe that if I do ask, they'll like think I'm stupid. So it, it's, I love your tagline of anti-elitism coffee roaster because in the specialty coffee community, there can be that vibe. It can be this thing that like, oh, we have this exclusive club and you have to go to an SCA course or you have to yeah. have research before coming to our shop where it's almost like most customers, it's the experience of the shop that's more important. And that's probably a better way to get someone interested in great coffee anyway. I, if you have a bad experience and a great cup of coffee, unless you're like the nerdiest of nerd and you're literally there just for the coffee, then you're probably not going to go back to that place. Exactly. And it's it's so about like the uh, the natural Ethiopian. You know, if a customer is afraid to ask what is a natural process because you know, um, the barista is going to be kind of snippy about it. And it's like, sure, one snippy barista, whatever. Once you have an entire collective, an entire culture of, you know, baristas and coffee roasters and whatnot, who are looking at the customer and going, why are you here if you don't already know? You know, it, it's almost like there's there's a test that we expect the customer to pass before they're allowed to enter our cafes. Yeah, it's, there's it's really <laughs> there's nothing like, oh, I just want to go for my morning cup of coffee. I'm headed to work or it's the weekend. I want to have a nice start to my day. And nothing like having to wake up and research before heading of what coffees. Yeah. I, I want to make sure I know what I'm ordering before I go so I don't have the potential to look stupid to start my day off right. It's really weird. And I hate it. <laughs> and, and changing it to the customer focus uh, influence, I'm sure that changed your perspective a lot on coffee culture. At, at what point in your career, because you said this was when you were like 15, at, at what point did TikTok even come on your radar? And before TikTok, were you doing anything in the coffee space when it comes to content creation or educational to tools or anything along those lines? So I've, I've always worked in coffee. Um, <clears throat> I'm 24 now um and i've always worked in coffee since i was 15 and uh that that education was over the course of many years um and i've, I've done a lot of um education like making infographics for cafes i worked at and uh doing some light consulting when it comes to like menu building and stuff but i only really started getting heavy into the education side content wise in like 2020 hmm. when I had a lot of spare time on my hands. Uh, <laughs> so what happened that year? No, we're not getting into that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. A forest fire or something. It was something, something small. <laughs> yeah. Something small. It, it, two weeks is what they said. It was just about two weeks. So you kind of start having the spare time. Was TikTok on your radar at the time? Did you already have it downloaded? I, Cause I find the journey into TikTok to be interesting. Cause I had the business first mindset of like, I'll start it for the business. This is a growing platform. I think we should be on there. Now I'm woefully addicted to the entertainment side as well. That's how I found your content. And the, yeah. th the thing I love about your content, and uh, I think this is true of all social media is sometimes you see someone that just starts creating without really having an expertise or knowledge in the niche or passion that they're posting about. And that's fine if, you, if you're doing it for that. But 
the thing I noticed with your content, the reason it was an immediate follow is I go, this is like really good information. So was that your intent in going into TikTok? Did you already have one or what did you get? Uh, did you get a new account just to start this kind of coffee education platform? So my, my first intro to TikTok was probably in 2018 when I first downloaded it. I think I posted my first video sometime in 2019 mm-hmm. and it was just, you know, I'd record something funny at work. Like I'd put like a muffin in the blender and add some milk or something. Um, funny uh, yeah. <laughs> and at the time you know, I've always wanted to have a platform of some sort you know and and I think a lot of people in in this age group do you know you, you want a platform no matter how you're going to get it no matter what the topic is you want someone to listen to you um, and my first video to do well um, was a video of me playing a, uh, a button box accordion. Uh, and I, I kind of just said, like, this is how you get women. And, <laughs> uh, and that video did all right. And I got like 900 followers. And that was awesome. And I did almost nothing with it. I never posted again, really. And then 2020 hit like March. I think, I think March like 28th or something. I post my first like, French press tutorial or something. And uh, it did, it did okay. It did some numbers. It got like 2000 views and like 600 likes. And I'm like, oh my God, this is perfect. Um, and I was like, you know what? If I just do that, I already know this. I already know how to do coffee. I'll just tell people about coffee, especially since right now, nobody can go out and get coffee. Mm. You know, they're going to be. And at the time I had already opened um, in 2018, I opened Golden Triangle Coffee. Um, and so I had that behind me too, where I could, you know, look at these people and say, all right, I'm also, uh, in this industry, in this way, I own a business in this industry. So here's my credibility. Um, but I post this one video sometime, like maybe June or something of, it was just me doing a pour over, like a full body shot, not a, like, you know, waist up, not a, not an angle I would ever do again. Um, and I think. I remember so specifically like getting in the car to do the voiceover and I was like, I don't want anyone to know I'm doing this. This is lame. Uh, but I, I pretty much said, um, I think I started the video by saying like, I, I hate the coffee industry. Mm. Uh, and I want to, I want to show you guys how to make better coffee, um, in like a non elitist, like non pretentious way. And that video exploded. And within 24 hours, I went from like 900 followers to like 40,000. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Now, so when I hear that, I go, okay, so I've done like some research on TikTok, like what videos work, what don't, kind of format. Not that I do it well myself by any means. Most of mine are like on the spot, whatever. But now the video pops up. I hate the coffee industry, but it's someone making a coffee. So you're like, there's the hook. And then here's what the video is going to do. And then here's the video. Did you have that in mind as you're making this of like why I did it that way? Or is it more just, you go, this is how I feel. So I'm just going to make a video. And then it just also happened to work that way. It was kind of a little of both. Hmm. Like the, the words I was saying were very sincere, just very off the cuff. I, I've never scripted anything I've ever done. Hmm. Um, except for like an ad where they asked me to write a script for it, but I've never scripted anything I've done. The video was very intentional. The video um, was designed because I, I've always had an idea of how algorithms work in social media. You know, it, I, 
I, whenever I started this, I was like, all right, comments, that's the most important thing. And I got comments primarily from, at the end of the video, I do a double pour with the Chemex, which I'm sure you've seen plenty of times. Yeah. People had not seen that on TikTok yet. Um, and so there were hundreds of comments, people were like, what is that? How did you do the <laughs> double pour? And I rode that wave for like a year of doing that double pour. And eventually I just stopped doing it because everyone had seen it by now. Every other coffee creator was doing it now. But yeah, everything I had done in that video visually was really intentional, but the words, and this is still how I structure things. Visually, everything is very, very intentional to drive some sort of engagement, but the words are almost nonsensical. I'll just ramble in videos for nothing. That's really interesting about the double pour because it's almost like with the importance of a comment driving TikTok to want to show it to new people because a like is one thing, but for somebody to stop, engage, and comment, that's like another level of engagement. TikTok goes, oh, this video people are engaging more with. We're going to push it to more people now. And then all of a sudden, it's it's also one of those weird things I've noticed that it's kind of like the more people that have already commented, makes you, it makes you want to go to the comments oh, yeah. and read them and add your own take. And all of a sudden, you've got people commenting on other comments and starting mini debates within the comment section. And having that insight early on that it's like, oh, I can continue to do new videos with new content, with new information, and as long as I do this double pour at the end, that something as simple as that can drive engagement to be able to increase the viewership, increase the engagement of what you're doing. Um, now, I notice you have a, a lot of different varieties of videos. I, I find that some people keep like a very specific aesthetic, they keep the uh, very similar style of video, how intentional are you with like the style or type of video are you creating? Is this something you're planning out ahead of time of how to keep your mix of videos of uh, something that might be kind of uh, talking to the camera about something versus like the really cool shots you do of uh, espresso pulls from your flare? Uh, are these things that you have really intentionally sorted out in your mind ahead of time? No, <laughs> I wish. Oh God, I wish. Um, it's, it's really weird. Uh, I do pretty much every video I post, I've recorded within 20 minutes of posting it mm. because I, I, I just don't have that foresight to be like, all right, at 8 PM, I want this video posted and I need to spend two days getting it together. I, a lot of my friends on TikTok, like Caitlin, who I'm sure you know, you've seen, yeah. um, very popular, uh, Tanner, you know, they, yep. they'll spend like hours making, uh, videos and we'll talk about it and I'll be like, how do you guys do it? I can't focus for that. Like if I spend hours making a video, by the time I post it, I'm not going to want to even look at it. I'm going to hate it. So, you know, I, I don't really think that far ahead with making the videos, but when it comes to the different structures that I do, I've got like a few main ones. You're right. I'll do like product reviews or informationals, um, coffee advice, like how to store your coffee. Uh, recipes, which normally are for whatever reason have become like my bread and butter. Mm. It's like all people expect from me. Um, and uh, then like the face to face where I'll reply to a comment. And that last one, the reply to the comment, that's normally whenever I'm feeling super low and I'm like, I haven't posted in three days. Uh, I feel horrible for that. I need to post something. But the other three, um, three, whatever amount I said. <laughs> Yeah, those are, I'll, I'll look at what I've been missing and what I'm seeing a lot on the For You page. And I'll go, okay, it's time to do 
a, a recipe video, you know, so that people will enjoy this recipe. Or I'll look at what Starbucks is making right now, what their seasonal drink is. And I'll be like, all right, I can probably do that better. And then I'll do it. And people are like, oh my God, it's so much better. It's like, yeah, I know. And so it's sort of intentional like that. Yeah. Just being cognizant of which videos you've posted, what's doing well. And even just the fact that you have those three different categories in your mind, that is, to me, it sounds like a really effective strategy for kind of sorting through what to post next. Cause that's, that's something I've run into. We have a really small followership, uh, but I started in 2019 as just like, Oh, we should be on here. Had a few videos go off that you go, that's where we got basically all of our followers. And since then this strategy has been like, again, Oh yeah, I haven't posted in a few days or just on the spot. You're like, Oh, this is kind of funny or interesting, but I like that strategy of having a few like core categories of this is how I post, this is how I shoot. And just knowing here's one I can do quickly, like a response to a comment or something like that. So that you have an idea in your head. Cause that takes down, if you have this whole funnel of like all the ideas you could possibly have for a video, you've now reduced that funnel down to a much finer point where you're like, yeah. I don't have to think of what 80 categories should I post about? I know I have these three things I'm really good at or that people really respond to. And then you're just kind of choosing which within those. And that can really cut down the potential like overwhelming feeling. And that, that is something I wanted to ask you is what does it feel like knowing you've got, you know, 980,000 plus followers that when you record and post a video that it's going to get pushed out to tens and hundreds of thousands of people potentially. Of people. <laughs> well, Real quick, just to go back real quick, I also structure my videos as a flow chart. This might help anyone who wants to get into this. I structure my videos as a flow chart. So I'll reference something in the video, whatever it may be, that I know people are gonna ask me about in the comments. And now I have feed for another video. Oh, that is super smart. So structure your videos like a flow chart where you, let's say you make a shaken espresso drink and you say, oh, you can make espresso in your mocha pot or espresso, I call it espresso adjacent coffee. Um, and inevitably you're gonna get 50 people at my, at my size, you're gonna get a few people who say, how do you make espresso in the mocha pot? And now you have a comment to reply mm. to where you can say, here's how you make espresso in the mocha pot. And then you say, I like a dark roast for espresso in the mocha pot. And then someone's gonna say, what about a medium roast? Now you can talk about the difference between medium and dark roast. So you've always got somewhere to jump off of. And that's also a way to decide if a video might even be worth making. If you, if you reference a mocha pot and at your follower don't at your following, don't get a single comment about it. You're like, they don't ask about it. People yeah. either already know about it or they're so uninterested that they're not even curious to ask, wait, what did you just reference? You go, Oh, now I don't need to make a video about that. So it's almost like you're right. pre-screening potential topics while making a video. I love, I love that strategy. I'm going to rewatch this episode probably at least twice to be able to write down all these things. Um, it works really well. But about the uh, the the amount of people that you push out to, yeah, it's it's very dehumanizing and very unrewarding. I will tell you that. That <laughs> yeah, because that's somebody <laughs> explained it to me this way, and it's it's almost always inevitably a smaller creator, or like you see these videos come from smaller creators where it's like, I have let's say thirty followers, and that's not a lot, but picture talking in front of a room of thirty people, <laughs> and my response to that is. No, 
picture a room of 30 people, you jump in the door, yell something at them for seven seconds, they might pay attention to you for one or two of those and then tell you to leave. <laughs> it's like yeah. a little bit more like that. So having that big followership and having these strategies is such a good way to be able to get people engaged because that's really like what these platforms are all about. And then it's also a way for you to know what do people want to learn about. And I'm sure owning a coffee roaster, which I want to get into next, that has to inform kind of how you market, how you communicate to customers. I know that sometimes I'll be talking to someone about coffee and they go, wait, what is that natural process? Like we referenced earlier and you go, oh yeah, I've been in it for so long that to me, that's just kind of a thing now. Whereas your general population of people probably doesn't know that coffee's actually in a cherry. And that's a really interesting tidbit. So especially taking the approach as anti-elitist roaster. And we have the same approach at Folly. That's like, we are not doing this with pretentiousness. We want people to have great coffee. And I saw your tagline on your website of basically great coffee's not an acquired taste. And I was like, that is such a great tagline. When yeah, you like, like <laughs> I want to give you such big props on that tagline because so many people, when they're creating a tagline for your business, they just go something funny, something cutesy, something short. And you go, but that's your one opportunity, especially on a website where that's going to be front and center. That's kind of your one opportunity to get across what you're trying to do. And if I were to go to your website, not knowing a lot about coffee, I might look at it and be like, I don't know what I'm looking at. So this probably isn't for me. But if you read that, it's like, oh, I don't have this expertise. I don't have an acquired taste for coffee. Maybe this is for me. Or you hear it with really bad coffee on the flip side that people go, I don't like the, I don't like coffee. It's, I've never acquired the taste for it. And you're like, that's probably because you haven't drank good coffee. So it's like that tagline. I was like, that's such a, a beautiful way to like tell people that if they've had a bad cup of coffee, that it's not because you have to acquire a taste for coffee. It's because great coffee, you don't need that acquired taste. I think it's the opposite. I think when you have a great cup of coffee, it's almost impossible to go back to like a cheap, overly roasted, bitter cup and enjoy it in any way, shape or form. Uh, last, qu <laughs> last question on TikTok, and then I want to move on to Golden Triangle. Uh, you referenced it a little bit earlier, but quality versus quantity of videos and then how often you uh, post. I, I know it's probably a, a bit of a balance between the two, but where do you stand on kind of this constant debate you're seeing about social media in general? You've got the Gary V strategy of like post 19 times a day. It doesn't matter if it's filmed with a potato. And then I just saw one that a, a, a person said, I like to post once a week. I'll spend 19 to 20 hours editing any video to make sure the timing's perfect. What's your kind of uh, strategy or opinion on quality versus quantity? So I guess it really depends on the definition of quality, really, because uh, some people view quality as the visual quality mm. or audio quality. Um, and this, this is something I've been hyper aware of for as long as I've been doing this, which is it doesn't matter how good my videos look, doesn't matter how good I sound. If I'm not likable, nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to watch um, and I'm not saying like, oh, I'm the most likable guy. That's why I have all these followers. No, plenty of people really, really hate me. <laughs> I've read the comments. <laughs> oh my God. It's um, I was like, this dude's posting about making espresso. The amount of hate that you'll still get about it is wild. 
that's what I mean by dehumanizing and unrewarding yeah. is even though you got, you know, 900,000 people who are like, oh, I love this. Those hundred people that are like, I want you to die. It's like, oh, <laughs> whoa. Um, but like the, the quality I think is it's, I will change how I record videos depending on what I'm doing. Like if I'm doing just a face-to-face talking to a comment, um, doing my front facing camera on my phone, it doesn't matter. If I'm doing a coffee advice thing, I'll use like my rear facing camera uh, just so it looks a little better. Mm -hmm. And if I'm doing a recipe video, I use a mirrorless uh, DSLR because they, they matter so differently to the eye, to the people watching, you know, for whatever reason, people, they, they love a face-to-face that does not look good. They don't want you to be crystal clear when you're talking directly to them. But if they're looking at food, they want to see every molecule in that thing. They want to see it so clearly. Like, they want to be able to reach out and touch it. So in terms of, like, visual quality, it really depends on what you're making. Hmm. But in the end, it really needs to, like, you need to be a likable person. You can't suck. And then also, like, as for quantity, I'm very bad at posting. Um, I'm terrible at it. You know, I, I try to post. I want to post once a day. That would be nice for me. I'm looking at like maybe once every three to four days currently. I feel my shoulders lowering just a bit just hearing that because there is so much of it out there that people are like, if you're not posting three times a day, you might as well get off the platform. But People it, will get sick of you. <laughs> the it, That's an interesting insight. It's almost like if there's a human element involved, like literally a person in the video, unless the video is quite on the nose about video quality or if that's the image you're trying to give forward it almost does make you more likable and relatable that you're like if you see somebody with just a video that is filmed with perfection you're you're going oh it does give that elitism vibe or if someone's trying to give you advice you're like i don't even know how to film a video like that how could i relate to you versus food it has to be as near perfect as possible. I mean, yeah. this is why food photography exists. It's why you see the videos of how they do the preparation for like a hamburger for Burger King. And it's, it's like yeah. inedible things and cardboard stackers in between. So it looks perfect. And even though you see that picture and go, I know this isn't real. I know that if I go to Burger King, and get that burger, it's not going to look remotely like that. <laughs> But damn, I want that burger now. I at least want to try. <laughs> I at least want to try it. And that's it's, I think aesthetic for coffee is one of those things that is undervalued as to why people want to have a great home setup. Like the aesthetic and the feeling you get from just a really great pour over or a shot of espresso or just this might be only for the really big coffee nerds, but just looking at your setup and being like, that's nice. I put that together. And that's that's one of those things that um I think I even addressed in that first video where I said like, Oh, I hate the coffee industry where I said, I make videos in my kitchen. I'm not doing it in some commercial facility. That's crystal clear and very clean with beautiful natural lighting. I'm doing it in my kitchen because that's where you're going to be recreating these things. I do, Mm. you know, people it's, it's sort of like, um, it, it makes you feel bad as a viewer, as a consumer, whenever you're looking at these beautiful well-lit like marble white counters and um people like it aesthetically like they'll they'll watch it for aesthetics but if they want to learn how to do something and and you're doing it in the most pristine 
beautiful setting they've ever seen. They're gonna be like, oh, I don't know if this is really for me. I'm not sure if this is, and that's something I actually learned from um, Alton Brown from Good Eats is all of Good Eats was filmed in actual kitchens that were in homes. I think the first one um, was done in one of the producer's kitchens. And they would put set set dressing up outside the window so that they're not looking at neighbors and stuff, but they were done in actual kitchens. And it made Good Eats have this very natural feel where it's like, I can recreate mm. what Alton has done here. I, I'm allowed to, I'm, I'm a part of this because I have a kitchen just like that. Whereas if you're looking at, um, you know, these just immaculate Ikea style kitchens, like I don't have the money to make espresso. There's no way. Yeah, it's like, First step for making great espressos, just make sure, you know, your uh, two-group uh, uh, La Marzocco is warmed up, that the boilers are heating, and you're like, oh, I'm out, I'm, okay. Uh, and th- But I see you've worked with flair in the past, but th- that's where you go. That's awesome to be able to get tutorials on a flair because you go, you know, the Neo, if I have $100, I could get an espresso machine, and now I've got this video that even if I look at it and don't understand it, now I've got this video that makes me want to make espresso at home at, at a quality level that's going to be really damn close to what you can do in a cafe considering you're making on that type of machine at home. And that's why um, my biggest recommendation is always, I, people always ask, oh, what should I spend on a home espresso machine? I want to get um, like the rocket or something. It's like, I never, never, never recommend anyone get an espresso machine for their house that's over $1,000. And it's kind of an arbitrary number. But the majority of people are, they get trapped in this, this loop where it's like, the more I spend, the better my coffee is going to be. And that's just not accurate. Mm. So I always recommend the Gaja Classic to everyone. And I tell people, like, it'll scale with you. And they love that. And I love it too. It's a good machine. It's what I use every day. Um, and like the flare, I, like, I always go like, oh, it's Mocha Pot, uh, AeroPress, the Prismo attachment, flare. Gaja. That's that's your pipeline of espresso. That's that's the budget pipeline. Yeah, and that's that's the perfect way to do it. Is because then somebody can kind of match their intention of like, what am I really looking for? Do I want? Yeah. Am I going to be interested in dialing in new coffees and exploring the flavor profiles of espresso, or do I want something that's going to be service uh, serviceable with a latte that I make every day? And then right. it, you can kind of go on that. Uh, that scale and go, Oh, you know, mocha pot. If you're just doing a home latte, you go, that's, that's serviceable. It's going to, the flavor profile is going to be pretty dang similar. Uh, The ratios are going to be a little different, but if you're looking to make lattes at home, you can get one of those, uh, you know, wand steamers with uh, heated milk, mocha pot. That's going to be a pretty dang serviceable thing. If you're making coffee at home. Now I want to shift to golden triangle coffee. You said you launched in 2018. At what point in your coffee career did roasting kind of become something you go, I think I want to do this professionally? Like a lot of roasters, I started it as a hobby for myself. Um, at most of the coffee shops I worked at, the coffee was just terrible. It was The, the drip was just awful. Um, and so I started going to grocery stores and getting like, coffee from there i got pete's and other like i got some local roasters even and i found i was like you know this is this isn't great like i know how to brew coffee this is my thing like i'm not it's not like i'm messing this up and i was like if if i want good coffee i'm spending you know at this point uh i think at the time the cost of a 12 ounce bag was something like 18 bucks now it's in like the 22 range i think um i was like i'm spending 18 bucks for not even a pound 
I started looking around like, oh, green coffee. I can get green coffee for like three bucks a pound at this time. I think, you know, um, I was like, all I got to do is find a way to roast it. So I went on Facebook marketplace. I found like a popcorn popper, one mm-hmm. of those stir crazies with the arm. I used that. And I was like, that's, that's all right. Like, I don't love this. This isn't good, but it is better than a lot of stuff I've had, which mm-hmm. is insane. And I realized, oh, I don't like, um, I don't like how the, uh, the hot plate affects the bean. And I was like, is there another option? I found um, one of those, they're called popcorn pumpers and it's from like the eighties. Uh, and they're very, very powerful, zero safety features on this thing, <laughs> but it's, it's an air popper for popcorn. I took it apart and I put some beans in there and it air roasts them. And I was like, Oh, this is really good. This is good coffee. And so that was, that started my love for air roasting. Um, and I gave some to other people and they were like, this is really good. I don't get any heartburn or any like acid reflux. And I was like, I wonder why that is. And so I started looking further. Oh, air roasting is easier on the stomach for these reasons. And um, I got a little Sona Fresco air roaster and a one pound one. And I started selling at farmer's markets. And that at that point I had started golden triangle coffee Mm -hmm. um, on April 20th of 2018. And then by 2019, I still was using the single pound air roaster and I started selling like across the state and I just slowly built up. Now I'm using a, uh, a 10 pound artisan um, XE. I think it's by coffee crafters, really good roaster for anyone who's looking to get into air roasting. It's like one of the most affordable options in the market. Um, but yeah, it was just like sort of that, that slow incline of, I don't really like the coffee I'm having. I'm going to do it myself. I'm doing it for myself. Now I'm giving it to friends now I'm selling it at farmer's markets. Now I'm shipping it across the state. And now obviously I'm shipping it everywhere. You know, United States, Canada, 30% of my sales go to California. So it's just that slow incline. And one of the main reasons that I started doing, that I started the business part of it though, because I, I probably would have kept doing just for myself, but I've always wanted to open a coffee shop, like an actual coffee shop and ch- sort of have my own culture in that way. Um, but just from a business perspective, an expansion loan is much easier to get than a startup loan. Hmm. And starting a coffee roastery is much less expensive compared to starting a cafe. Could and, you could you explain? Sorry to interrupt, but could you explain the two the difference between those two loans? Uh, a startup loan, you are essentially going to uh, a bank or some sort of investor and saying, "Here's my idea." here's what I project to bring in income wise. Here's, here's my cost of goods. Here's my, uh, my sale price. Here's the potential customer base that I would be serving. And they're going to look at that and be like, you've got it all together, but we're going to need something from you regardless. And normally that's like a mortgage on your house or something. I don't have a house in 24 at the time I was less than 24. Um, (laughs) Uh, that yeah. checks out. <laughs> yeah, it was sometime it was way back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so to get a startup loan, you have to have some sort of right. upfront capital, even then. Or if you do crowdfunding, which just is not a successful tactic for the majority of businesses, you know. Um, an expansion loan, however, you it, so long as you're making like over a hundred thousand dollars in revenue a year, regardless of what you're paying yourself, if that business is making a hundred thousand dollars you can go to pretty much any bank 
you know, in the United States and say, Hey, I have this business. We made a hundred thousand dollars last year. Um, and I want to make more, I want to make $300,000 next year. And to do that, I'd like to expand my roastery into a coffee shop. And they're going to go, you made a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Uh, here's 50,000. We know you're, you're decent. You know, they're going to give you a predatory amount. Don't take that full 50. Uh, but, um, you know, they're going to look at you and go, Oh, well, you actually have, you've, you've proven the concept here. You've, you've shown us that you not only are one of the big things is, are you willing to actually work mm. for the money that, you, you know, that they really care. Like that's, that's one of the biggest loan things is, are you actually putting in the work? People don't think they look at that. They think they look at just the numbers. No, if, if they see you're just like a uh, hands-off owner and you're letting something run, they, they're not as interested in you. But yeah, an expansion loan is much easier to get than a startup loan because you have some sort of proof of concept. And that revenue that you were able to go uh, and seek out an expansion loan, that was the revenue from the farmer's markets primarily and then uh, the coffee you were shipping to customers. Uh, is, is that correct? Well, I've, never actually, I've never actually even gotten the expansion loan. Oh, you never even had I, to do that. I've been eligible to uh, get an expansion loan for I think two years now. Um, and I just, well, for one, the timing hasn't been right. Um, but also I'm comfortable, you know, I'm yeah. doing all right. So, uh, so you're, you're saying no real reason for me to get into the coffee shop right now. So you're saying the strategy of uh, starting as a roaster first was because you had this idea that, oh, it'll be more affordable to start a roaster first and then build yeah. that business and then be able to leverage that into an expansion loan. Is that so that that's OK? I, I, I understand that now, but I did not know the difference between those two. But now that you say it, especially when you brought up the predatory loans, I go, oh, those are the you know, 10 emails I get in my junk box every day yeah. that is like, we can get you $300,000 tomorrow. And I'm like, that, I, I don't trust you. I mean, since, since starting in 2018, the amount I've spent on equipment, uh, to run my roastery, this isn't counting, you know, um, fluid things like coffee and boxes and bags. No, in terms of just equipment, the capital spent, equipment. Yeah. I've spent about $15,000. And that is, that is the, the the big thing about coffee roasting, and that, that's it's similar advice to what I got early on. Uh, the the advice I got early on was like decide which one you want to do first. And you know, I started it off the savings I had from the previous job and all the jobs I was working while I was back home, starting to uh, get the business going. Uh, and and that is one of the big things about coffee roasting is the capital needs to start a roaster versus a shop are so different. And then especially like you were saying, if you're younger, if you don't have, it's, you had a lot of experience. I did not have a lot of experience in the industry. These are all factored into the decision-making. Whereas with a coffee roaster, if you're looking at a one pound roaster, that's something that if you put some savings aside for a, a, a decent amount of time to be able to just purchase it outright, then at least you've got something to be able to start to work with. And then you start to figure yeah. out what your customers like versus I've always thought that starting a coffee shop you're making a lot of assumptions, probably based on research, but you're making assumptions about what the customer wants, and you have to be pretty damn right when you open, because yeah. it's pretty hard to shift an aesthetic, uh, a layout, a, a coffee menu, your whole strategy to how you serve things. That's much harder to sh shift than if you're a coffee roaster, and you're like, oh, these types of coffees are doing well. I can get another bag of that and start uh, selling more of that. 
Well, even even just the um, the time commitment of starting a roastery versus starting a cafe. For a cafe, you're there every day. You're not going to be working a side job for this amount of time. Like I started the roastery in 2018. I held a full-time job until 2020, and primarily for health insurance, which I sure do miss. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I, I uh, you know, I held that full-time job and I tell people all the time, they're like, hey, how do I get into this? How do I start this? I'm like, there's a few reasons to start a roastery first. Cost, uh, cost not only starting the roastery, but also once you eventually expand to a cafe, you're not going to have to buy coffee from, you know, another roaster and spend mm. nine, nine, ten, $15 uh, per pound for wholesale, depending on who you're going through. You're going to spend four bucks, five bucks, depending on the coffee you're getting. But also in a lot of states, you can do it from your house for a little while and just sell at farmer's markets. You know, you don't have to invest in a commercial facility. You know, you're going to get a roaster, some beans, any rolling stock like that. And you can do it on the weekends. You can do it on, on, you know, after six, when you get home, like it's not a big deal yeah, as opposed to a coffee shop. You're stuck. You're it's, trapped. it's the old cliche that like retail is jail. And it's like, if you have a retail shop of any sort, in your head, you're going, I'm the owner. I can be in and out whenever you want. You're like, that's, I know a lot of coffee shop owners and that's rarely the case. That's why I've never opened retail for the roastery that I, for my roastery is it's all manufacturing. I don't do any retail. I let other people do my retail. You know, I'll give it grocery, you know, grocery stores, um, primarily hand to hand though, because I make the most money on that. Um, but yeah, I'm never going to open a, like a retail shop for the roastery because what, I'm going to stand there all day and hope for someone to come in. I have a website for that. <laughs> yeah, I think you and I think very similarly about a lot of stuff. Cause at, at the end of the day I go, eh, I don't want to. And you're like, even if customers are asking for it, you go, I understand that might be more convenient for you, but it's a huge ask. I think sometimes customers go like, you should open a shop. Like it seems so obvious. And you're like, yeah, from a customer perspective, it definitely is that, hey, I need coffee today. Oh, I can go pick it up at the shop. But you go, you know, we're available in grocery stores. We're available online. Uh, there are places for you to go pick it up. And what you're asking is that, oh, okay, I'll go to the bank, take out uh, a loan for hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'll take the risk on a lease. I'll, I'll have to basically go through this whole process to be able to make it so that it's a little easier to get the coffee direct from the source. And that yeah. whole risk-reward balance it seems pretty simple from a customer perspective like no the reward is awesome but the risk for a customer is nothing and so from and it's huge for us it's it's massive i mean you're basically leveraging the entire business you have for something that might not work versus focusing on what you're doing and making that improved you're going well maybe we can take our existing processes and make them better to make it more convenient so that maybe we won't ever be as convenient as having a shop local where you can come pick it up but if we can continue to make the processes of ordering of reordering simpler and simpler then in a way it's could be as convenient uh i mean like coffee subscriptions is a great example like if you get a subscription you know i buy coffee every two weeks in a way it's more convenient than going to the store because then it's automatically yeah. showing up. You don't even have to think about it. And so it's, it's kind of a good feeling to hear someone else that you're clearly very strategic in your decisions that it's nice to hear that, that you're like, okay, I'm just balancing out all the different options here. And it isn't the, the, that the customer's always right. You go, yeah, but from their perspective, the customer is right in their perspective. 
yeah, I've always kind of had the mindset and this is not my nicest opinion, but like the customer is only as right as I will let them be, mm. you know? And some people will hear that and be like, Oh, that's not very nice. And it's, well, it's true. Cause if the customer was always right, they do it themselves. I will tell you this much that anyone in the serv- that has worked in the service industry will 100% agree with you on that. There is not a single person, I guarantee it, that has worked in the service industry and would believe wholeheartedly that the customer is always right. You go, oh, yeah. no, the broad majority of customers are right. There's always going to be that person. I've said this before, and it, it does sound kind of mean. You go, there are customers you don't want, and that sounds so counterintuitive in doing business. I've had customers order online and immediately there's a complaint about something that in my head, I go, this is kind of unreasonable. I mean, something as simple as we roast weekly on Thursdays, it'll be roasted and shipped that same day. They order it on a Monday and then it's like, this isn't shipping until Thursday. Or like, yeah, like it was listed on the ordering page, the checkout page, and then the email that you get after you order. And then there's this outrage and you go, Okay, this probably isn't somebody I want to order again because the amount of time that I'll probably have to dedicate towards these types of requests. Yeah, exactly. Versus the customer service you want to be focusing on is my order was met. It was the wrong bag of coffee. It was, you know, it didn't show up. You go, okay, that, you know, that does happen. The packages do get lost. That's the customer service I want to be dealing with because you go, if I was in your position, obviously we're going to rectify the situation right away. I've got two, just two quick points on customer service one time i got an order sometime maybe like 9 p.m on a friday right or no it was a saturday so like 9 p.m on a saturday sunday morning at like 8 a.m this lady emails and says why hasn't my order moved i was in shock i was like there's no way that you just or you just emailed us not even 12 hours after you placed your order on a Sunday, we don't ship out over the weekends. Cause you know, uh, we roast, we roast the day we ship. So, and that's very clear all over the website, but to email us the next morning after you've ordered, be like, where is my order? Um, are you crazy? Another email I got was from a guy who emailed to complain that his postal service delivered his coffee after he had had his morning cup. I would like to laugh at that, but the number of emails I've gotten about post offices, things that are completely out of our control, we went through this bout, this was like a month ago, it was out of nowhere, we've been in business for four years, and out of nowhere, shipping our coffee from just west of Minneapolis, they were rerouting our packages through Des Moines and delivering back to St. Louis Park, where we rose. So, like, people, like, five minutes away were getting coffee that went to Des Moines and then up to them. It was still arriving on time, but, like, and admittedly, like, there's, I might ask, some people were very polite about it. Hey, I checked out my package. Why did it go through Des Moines? And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I don't know. And I've got, like, five inquiries to the post office about this. But I had people be like, I will never buy coffee from you ever again. I buy from you because I'm local. And the fact that it's going through Des Moines, this is absolutely unacceptable. And you go, okay, I kind of understand where you're coming from. It is ridiculous, but to not understand that that's so out of our control. I don't go to the post office and go, hey, this package here, will you make sure this one goes to Des Moines first? But yeah, And, and then they go, well, you should just upgrade the shipping. And I go, well, you know, we do free shipping. It's just included in the cost. 
and to ship something in one day for four dollars versus uh, or uh, to ship something at the flat rate and it might take two to three days at four dollars the jump to go to the next one is like nine ten dollars so most people aren't going to be willing to pay an additional you know six dollars on top of their existing package especially when like we like to do free shipping it's a personal opinion of mine that like amazon is kind of ruined added on shipping for everybody you're right uh and it's that could be a whole nother podcast about like free shipping versus add on shipping. And there are very, very good points for both sides. I, at one point I go, this is how we do it. And this is how we're going to continue to do it. But it's, it is interesting to hear. And that is one of the arguments for a retail shop or having the pickup option. But it's, it's at a certain point you have to go, this is how we do business. I'm sorry. We, we listed out completely. I'm sorry. You didn't see it as you were ordering. And I do genuinely feel bad because this person spent their hard earned money on our coffee, but I go, you know, I, I've done it before where I just go, you know, here's a full refund. Enjoy your coffee. I'm sorry for the experience you had. And maybe they'll come back. But honestly, a lot of the time in those situations with someone that is having these thoughts, I go, enjoy your bag of coffee. See you later. <laughs> yeah. the, the more frustrating thing that I find is, I don't know if you experience this, is a lot of times customers, if there's a problem, they won't reach out. For like a really long time, yeah. I'll get pe- I'll get people who email and like, hey, I ordered coffee in July, and it still hasn't arrived. It's like, D- it's December. Why <laughs> didn't you say something? Because like, I will get you your coffee. Yeah. But like, why didn't you say something in July? And they're like, oh, I didn't want to be a bother. It's like you paid me money. <laughs> yeah, like, we roasted Minnesota. I'm very familiar with this concept. This is like that's like the most Minnesotan thing. You're just coming. Hey. I really don't want to be a bother, but I did buy $50 worth of coffee like three months ago. I was just, I just wanted to check in, see what the status is on that. And you're like, oh my God, no. And especially with like the way that a lot of uh, packages end up not being delivered is normally it's a shipping label has been destroyed in mm-hmm. some way. And they'll still find a way to return it to us because it has that initial like barcode on it. But I don't know what that label said at this point. So like, it's like, yeah, if something comes back, I'm going to wait for an email to come to me and be like, hey, my coffee didn't arrive. So, oh, this was yours. That you know? That's happened multiple times where it shows up and you're like, oh, shoot, someone didn't get their order. And you can open yeah. it unless it's a super unique order, like the mix or whatever was very specific. You're like, but most orders being one or two bags of coffee, pretty, you know, pretty common orders. You're like, all right. I hope someone reaches out because I feel really bad, but there's nothing we can do. Yeah, you're stuck. You're kind of trying. What are you going to do? Send out an email blast to your last. <laughs> hey, we got a package back. Who wants it? But, and you go, okay, we're like building an argument for having a retail store. But again, these things that we're, we're like talking about these and you go, well, you should have a shop. This would solve all these problems. You're like, yeah, but we're talking about a, a quarter million of a dollar solution for a problem that like we can rectify very quickly. And it's a, with small business, like you hope that they understand that like, hey, I'm going to make this right. We're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to get you extra coffee shipped out for the delay, whatever it is. Like there's always a way to make someone feel good about the situation and that they didn't get duped or that they didn't get what they wanted. Unfortunately, sometimes timing matters, but it's kind of like you have to weigh these things out as you go into business. So oh, yeah. to wrap up this episode, I'm just going to real quickly ask you uh, kind of some home brewing questions. You answer how you feel, uh, but kind of going for just like short, quick, concise answers on like common home brewing things. So just 
generally, what are your top tips for brewing better coffee at home? That's a good question. Um, your filter matters. Your filter matters a lot. Um, so to be as concise as possible, flat bottom filters will benefit you more than you think compared to conical filters. A lot of people don't like their conical filters, but they don't know it's the conical filters that they don't like. Um, I Boom. can go on, but I feel like that's- Oh, no, I like that. that. That is not what I expected. And now I, I'm like, oh, I gotta start brewing more flat bottom coffee now. Uh, what's your preferred flat bottom brewer that you use? Uh, I use the origami drip for almost everything, honestly, because it's very versatile. Origami with the uh, Kalita Wave filter in it, that kind of style? Kalita Wave or the V60, which are conical. So just because, you know, you'll switch those up depending on what you're brewing. Oh, you like that? You, so you're saying you prefer conical over fl flat bottom? No, no. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm saying that they both do things better uh, separately. So the, ah. the flat bottoms are often better for more uh, more floral, more fruity coffees, whereas the conical I find are much better for uh, those deeper chocolatey notes, those caramel flavors. Cool. Okay. I like so that. That's, that's my biggest brewing tip is that your, your filter choice really does affect the coffee, in my opinion, even more than um, I think most people's answer would be uh, get, a, get a grinder. I don't think you really... I don't think most people need a grinder, but your filters, yeah, that you can change. It's pretty cheap to, you know, have that, that option. I like that. Next one, biggest myth or mistake you see being made brewing coffee at home. Oh, biggest myth or mistake. Um, I think, you know, I could, okay. At home, I'd say people storing their coffee in the freezer. And what's your take or on it? Don't do it. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, my big thing is leave your coffee in the bag it comes in. You know, you know, as roasters, we spend good money on those bags that are designed specifically to keep your coffee fresh for as long as possible, even after they're opened, if you reseal it properly. But whenever I see people take their coffee out of the bag, they put it in a mason, like a, a clear mason jar and just put it on the counter and the window. And it's like, oh, don't do that. Um, so, yeah, I'd say the biggest, like, mistake or myth uh, is that oh put your coffee in the freezer it'll last longer technically that's correct but the way that you are going to do it is likely going to damage the coffee that, you, know, you have to you have to shrink like shrink wrap or, or uh, vacuum uh, seal uh, the, vacuum the seal yep yeah and then it's like so every time you're going to get a cup of coffee out of there if you're doing it the right way you're going to get a new vacuum seal layer and and then if yeah. there's any moisture at all in there it, that doesn't work either that's a really good one uh, and then let's finish on a TikTok one here. Uh, tip or tips for someone looking to grow their TikTok following within their passion or niche. Can I do two? Absolutely. Um, if you are a business uh, or you are representing a business, do not make your account a business page. Um, I think I have some changes I need to make. <laughs> and your that's second a really big one. Okay. That's I, a really big one. And your second tip. Second tip is don't get wrapped up in those, those minor uh, inconveniences or those, those minor negative comments. They are really good for you. You want people to, as much as it hurts, as, as much as it might be like, Oh, that sucks. I don't like people don't like me the more people that don't like you, the better your content is going to do. And the more people that do like you, it's going to reach. Mm. And one, one 
one quick thing on that connected mispronounce a word every now and then (laughs) mispronounce a word every now and then and people will freak out say caramel don't say caramel say i say caramel in my day-to-day but if i say caramel in a video i got 45 people in the comments going what's wrong with you like that's a really good one that's engagement you've got people that their entire accounts is just how they talk people go why are you talking like that and they become famous off of just like it's a food video but I'm sure you've seen some of these accounts where you're like, this voice is so weird and different that like you have to comment. You're like, where are you from? Like what accent is that? What, why are you saying it like that? I love that as a tip to finish it off. Uh, I'm going to finish our recording uh, and end our episode as I do every other episode and say, have a nice day.